You know, tomorrow, many of us have a lot of plans. I, I don't know. You may plan on taking your family somewhere, some ac- activity. Uh, maybe you plan on working on your property, like I do a lot <laughs> on the day after the Sabbath. So we have a lot of plans for those things. But today is a little bit different because what, what we plan for tomorrow is tomorrow, but today is today. I mean, we're all here at a Sabbath meeting. So if you want to call a title, let me just say it, call the title today. And I I say that because recent deaths of several people that I know have have given me cause to consider this sermon. We have three phases to our life. We have yesterday or the past. That's all those events that have taken place in our life to this point, we have today, or current events, things taking place right now, all those things that are happening as I speak right now. And then we have tomorrow, or the future, and that's all those things that could happen to us throughout the rest of our life in the future. When we consider yesterday or our past, you know, we may have many very pleasant thoughts, perhaps some regrets, I I know that I do, or things that we did or just did not do. I have many of those, many of those sorts of things that I should have done that I didn't get done. However, the past is just that. It's the past. It's gone. There's nothing we can ever do about the past. Regardless of what you think, there's nothing you can do to change the events that have already taken place in your life. When we look at tomorrow and the events that we will take that plan on doing tomorrow, we may look forward to a lot of those things that are we're, we're going to do with our family, with our friends, whatever tomorrow. However, do you have any guarantee, any guarantee, that you will be there for that event tomorrow. Whatever it was that you had planned, will you be there for that event? Today and what is happening right here and now is the only thing that guarantees our participation. As I speak, as you listen, these are things that are taking place right now, and we have control over those things. Now, several, Several years ago, when I was driving, I've heard the story about that tremendous earthquake in Nepal. And when, and when I heard that when I was driving, I, I thought about the decision uh, or, or a discussion, not a decision, a discussion that I had with my brother concerning his trip to Kathmandu. Now, I, I, I mentioned that my brother was a very senior executive in the CIA. He did a lot of traveling, and I'm one of the places he did travel was Kathmandu. And we were talking about that. But anyway, when I thought about that, and then I thought about this earthquake in Nepal, and that one event, that one event, just a short period of time, in just a short period of time, 6,500 people were dead, gone. We recently, in one of the other churches of God recently, man driving with his daughter died both of them died in an automobile accident, leaving a wife and three children. 
they had no tomorrow. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I realize these people will be resurrected at a later date. Okay? But right now here, I am referring to the physical time, physical time that we have here on earth. They had today, but they did not have a tomorrow. Then we could go through, and I've thought about all the multiple bombings that we've had, and think about all the multiple shootings in our cities that we've had, in our schools, and, and those people. We've seen train wrecks. We see airplane disasters. And there's so a multitude of many other things that stop our life short of tomorrow. That's when I got to thinking what I would do today if I had no tomorrow. And what would you do today if you had no tomorrow? You know, we're fortunate because we know God's plan. We've read the last chapter of the book. We know God's plan, so we do have a very sincere hope for our future. But are we convinced that we have done all that we could possibly do and should have done if there is no tomorrow? Now, I truly believe that we live in a rat race. I've been in this rat race for a long time, and I'm telling you, it's getting it's getting worse and scarier. And so, so many things that keep us from doing all the things that we should be doing. It's a rat race. I saw, I once saw a graduation card from school that once read, "Welcome to the rat race." <laughs> you know, and how true that describes the life that we live today. It's like a regular rat race. How busy are we just trying to maintain what we refer to as our standard living, just our standard living? And I remember many a times, many a times, wishing I could stop the world and get off. For a long period of time, I overindulged in work. I worked two full-time jobs for a while, every day. But I'd like sometimes, I thought it would be nice to get off this world and take a breather. Have you? And have any of you ever felt that way? You know, I believe I've read the book of Ecclesiastes probably more time than any of the other books in the Bible. Don't know why. It's probably because I spent much of my life, like Solomon, searching for answers to life as a natural man. Notice in Ecclesiastes 1, let me, let me refer, refer you to that. In Ecclesiastes 1 and in verse 3, it says, What profit does a man have in all his labor which he labors under the sun? Notice his whole search was for physical things of labor under the sun, physical things of labor. And Solomon is so wrapped up in the nature of life and tries to understand why things happen as they do. But notice that what he finds in Ecclesiastes 1 and verses 14 and 15 is frustration. He says, 
I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Understand that. Solomon intensifies his search, though, and tries using pleasure and things that make him feel good. Then he tries he tries mirth. And what he thought to be the fun things in life he went after. But Steb, what does he find? He finds misery. He tries comedy. But instead, what does he find? He finds chaos. He tries wine, but finds it wanting and lacking the satisfaction that he really desires. He tries many diversions, many different diversions, but finds them disappointing. Then then he tries to find meaning in, in the great projects that he got involved in. He tries architecture. He tries agriculture. Notice in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He says, I made great works for myself. And notice, notice here who he's trying to please himself. He says, I build houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and orchards for myself. I planted trees in them of of all fruit. I made pools of water for myself to irrigate the groves and the growing trees. He tried mansions. He tried music. Notice in verse 8, I also gathered silver and gold to myself, to myself, and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got man singers and women singers for myself. Even the sensual delights of the sons of men and many women. He then tries power and position in verses 9 through 11, where he says, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Talk about vanity. Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from myself. I did not withhold my heart from any of the pleasures, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was the portion of all my labor. Notice here in verse 11, the outcome of all this searching, after, after all these physical pleasures that he was searching after, he said, then I looked on all the works that my hand had done, 
and on the labor that I had labored to do. And what was the final result? What was the final result? And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind, and there is no profit under the sun. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? What shall it profit a man? How do you know when you're in a rat race? If you're exhausting, number one, if you're exhausting yourself to gain material possessions, is that your sole purpose? Number two, if you work night and day to keep up with others, And number three, if your life centers around yourself instead of others, like we just read. Solomon focused his life on the physical pleasures of life. And he took none of what he labored from, from, you know, him to his death. He took none with him when he died. If you knew you had no tomorrow, would you use today to pursue the physical pleasures of life? You know, there's important things that we need to do today in the event that there is no tomorrow. Now, I am a father of several children, and I not only love them, I also want their love in return. And we have a heavenly father, and he not only loves us, he also wants our love. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hurt sometimes when I don't hear from my children for long periods of time. And God has the same reaction to us. Notice that all the commandments hinge on just two. They all hinge on just two. And we, we're familiar with those, but turn to Mark 12. Turn to Mark 12. And here in verse 28 of Mark 12. We have a scribe that asked Jesus. He said, which is the first commandment of all? Then in verse 29, Jesus answers him and he says, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, our one God is the Lord, the Lord. Here it is reflecting on Deuteronomy 6 and in verse 4. But then in verse 30, then in verse 30, he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. If there were no tomorrow, would you not want to let God know that you love him and that you appreciate him? Would you not want to thank him for all that he's done for you and let him know how grateful you are for all the food and the clothing and the housing and the other things he provides to you, your family, and our nation. If there were no tomorrow, it would be too late. Have you ever gotten so busy that you're halfway through the day and you realize I haven't taken time to pray today. 
Continuing on with Jesus again, Jesus continuing on in verse 31 of Mark. And he says, and the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If there is no tomorrow, would you not want to let your your parents know how much you appreciate it and love them? How about your wife or your husband? How about letting your children know that you love them? And if you've still harbored any bitterness toward others, would you not want to resolve these issues and leave with a clear conscience? Jesus taught that we are to love even our enemies. In Luke 6, in Luke 6 and in verse 35, Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he is for he is good to the unthankful and the wicked. Brethren, we do indeed live in a busy world with plenty of things to grab and keep our attention. There is no doubt about that. And I know, I know personally that I have the propensity to procrastinate and put off things for another day. I don't know if any of you deal with that, but I do sometimes. But we never know when there will not be another day. Showing our love to God and our fellow man is something that can wait, cannot wait until there is no tomorrow. It's something we can't put off. Our trip to the grave is something that is going to happen. Don't know the day, the hour, the minute. It is going to happen. However, sometimes I, I think man has swallowed the lie of Satan the devil. Remember? In the Garden of Eden, he told Eve that you shall not surely die. Well, we are all going to die. And it surely appears that millions of people live as if that lie were the truth. Too many of us store up riches as if we are never going to leave them. You know, I live in a fairly decent home, but it's just brick and mortar, and one of these days, just like all the buildings of history, they will eventually die, collapse. Maybe we just need a little better house. Maybe we just need a little better car to drive, and and, and, and a boat, a really nice boat would be nice, wouldn't it? And how about a nice fat bank account? Can't say I have one that fat, I'll be honest with you, but we, what, what about that? But we we do know that Satan did lie, and we're told in Hebrews 9 and in verse 27, we're told in Hebrews 9 and in verse 27, and in a, inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. The grave awaits the rich and the poor, both alike. Solomon didn't take anything with him with all that he had gained in life. How often are we stopped for a funeral in a procession? 
we each have an appointment with death. We all reach a day when there will be no tomorrow. And, of course, physically speaking, of course, is what I'm speaking of. Are you prepared for that day? I wonder how many of those 6,500 people in Nepal were prepared and ready for that death. I, I, I think about the husband that I mentioned and his daughter that died in that automobile accident. They didn't plan for it. They didn't. They, they thought they had a tomorrow. Do you suppose the rich and highly educated of the world are better prepared? I don't care how many degrees you have behind your name from whatever university or how much wealth you've accumulated in a lifetime. Psalm 49 paints a pretty clear picture of the path for mankind. Let's begin reading in verse 6. Psalm 49, verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and in their many riches boast themselves. No man can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of the soul is costly, and there no payment. No payment is enough. That he should live forever and never see corruption? So much for the accumulation of wealth. Now, continuing on, for the educated in verse 10, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool, and the brutish person perishes together, and they leave their wealth to others. They leave their wealth to others. Wealth and things of comfort by themselves are not evil. They're not evil but they won't prepare you for anything beyond this physical life. Their inward thought is that their houses should go on forever. This is verse 11. Their inward thought is that their houses should go on forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. But this does not prepare them for meeting their maker. Notice in verse 12. Nevertheless, man, though high in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of the foolish and of their followers who delight in their sayings. Like sheep, they are appointed, they are all appointed to the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall have rule over them in the morning, and their form shall decay in the grave far from their home. Far from their home. Brethren, we cannot place our trust in the physical things of the world. The smartest people in the world haven't found a solution for death. We're all taught about healthy living And it can certainly enhance our physical being. There's no doubt about it. We should eat healthy. We should should remain healthy. But it won't prepare us for eternal life. 
medical science comes up short in its efforts to find the pill that will give us eternal life. Miracle drugs help. There are certain drugs out there that are probably good, but only for a season. Science had conquered many fatal diseases. There have been a lot of the diseases we've had in the past and that we have had things that have taken some of them away. But life still ultimately ends in spite of all our efforts. And we still have an appointed time. We all have an appointed time. In spite of all this, brethren, we do have hope. The only preparation we can make for the grave is through our faith in Christ. That's the only hope. Notice that even Job, he knew his Redeemer would provide victory over the grave. He knew that. In Job 19, in verse 25, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand upon the earth in the latter days. Brethren, there is indeed hope, but it's not in the physical things of life. I think we've often been told to live every day as if it were your last day, but plan for the future as if you are going to live forever. We have the story of King Hezekiah when he was sick, and he was told he was going to die. And we find that story in 2 Kings, verse 20, 2 Kings 20. So let's go there. Let's, let's turn to 2 Kings 20 and in verse 1. In verse 1, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick to death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Notice what he tells him. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Get ready, you're not going to live. Notice he was given no hope to live and to set his house in order. Death is inevitable for all, and as we were told in Hebrews 9.11, it is appointed unto men once to die. Simply a plain fact of life. Adam, who was never born, but he did die. Methuselah lived 969 years, but he died. And Samson was one of the strongest men who ever lived, but he died. And Solomon was wiser than all, but he died. Now we know that death is the result of sin, and we've all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5 and in verse 12, we're told, Therefore, as if by one man sin entered into the world, and by means of sin came death, and in this way death passed into all mankind, and it is for this reason that all have sinned. But we also know that Jesus came to die and to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. Even though he was sinless, he paid the ultimate penalty and died as a substitute for all sinners, us. 
Now we read this frequently at Passover, but as a means of encouragement, let's read Isaiah 53, just just as a reminder. In verses 5 and 6, it says, But he was wounded for our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray. Boy, what a true statement there. We have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All must physically die, but we have hope in eternal life through the death of Christ. He paid for our sins. Now, going back again to verse 1 of 2 Kings 20, verse 1, where Hezekiah was told to set his house in order because he was going to die. Like Hezekiah, we ought to be prepared for death, and we should set our house in order. Preparation for the preparation of family members should be done, and especially if we have young children, loved ones should never be left with debt. And my wife and I have a trust that we've set up, and everything we own belongs in a trust, and we have executors that will take over the trust. But by providing for our families in the event of death should bring us peace of mind now and then later. Having faith in Christ prepares us both to live and to die. Jesus makes life worth living, as we're told in John 10, John 10 and verse 10, John 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. But he says, I have come so that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Jesus Christ takes the sting. He takes the sting out of dying. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15 and in verses 55 through 57. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 55 to 57. Where it says, all death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the Apostle Paul considers when living in Christ that death is gain. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And begin in verse 21, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. For to me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. Now I live in the flesh. This is the fruit of my labor, but I do not know what I should choose. For I am hard-pressed to choose between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Hezekiah learned the power of prayer and was given an additional time to live. He was actually given another 15 years. But he still had to face the common end to mankind. Is your house in order? Are you prepared for life or for death? We're told in Psalm 90 and in verse 12, Psalm 90 and in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. 
We don't know the exact number. Some die young, some die much older. I had a grandmother that died in Shelbyville, Tennessee at the age of 98 years old, and she she was able to stay out of a nursing home until she was 98, and she didn't live very long in the nursing home. But I also saw my brother's son at the age of eight, and he died of leukemia. So what would I say if this were my last sermon and there was no tomorrow? I would speak first to those that I love. We all have responsibilities to those closest to us. I believe I should start by assuring my family of my faith in Christ, which gives me the assurance of eternal life. How often do we see loved ones that are left behind that wonder if they will ever see them again? I would assure them that through God's love, we would walk together again. I would tell them how God called me to the truth of his kingdom and the transformation it made in my life. I would want them to know how I gave thanks for all those that helped me share this life of faith in Christ. I would share with them a few scriptures to assure them of my future such as John 6, John 6, and verse 37, John 6, verse 37. All whom the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will will in no wise cast out. Or perhaps remind them in 1 John 5, 1 John 5, and verses 11 11 through 13. And this is, is the witness that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has eternal life, and the one who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life, that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I would want them to know this was not the end but the beginning. Finally, I would assure them that I love them and God loves them. The second part of my sermon would be to tell them where where I will be going and that I must first, I must first sleep. Once again, referring 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 51. Verse 51, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptibility, and this mortal must put on put on immortality. Or perhaps I would refer them to First Thessalonians four and verse fourteen. First Thessalonians four, verse fourteen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in exactly the same way also, those that have fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The third part of my sermon, I would tell them when I 
wake up from this sleep, I will be in a much better place. John describes this new world that God intends for, you know, for all, all mankind if they do come to repentance in Revelation 21. I love this, and, and I've used this at a funeral, at beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And what a wonderful, spectacular news we get in verse 41 when he says, And God shall wipe away every tear from the eyes, and there shall not be any more death or sorrow or crying. Neither shall there be any more pain because the former things have passed away. Who would want to trade that opportunity for what we see in the world today? I would tell them that this is the world I hope to share with my loved ones. My wife, my mother, my father, my brothers, my sister, my children, and all those who share my faith in Christ. I think all those people that died in Nepal without having the chance to prepare for death, and my wife reminded me that after the second major quake in days, that number exceeded 8,000. What a tragedy. This event had a tremendous impact on me. Brethren, we are not guaranteed that life will last until tomorrow. But there is are things that we can and should do to be prepared. We can be ready. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. And notice this parenthetical statement by Paul quoting Christ. He says, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Notice Paul's next statement. Behold, now is an acceptable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Brother, how many tomorrows, tomorrows do we have? Physically, we're only guaranteed today. But we have hope because Christ has promised us a much better world to come. Brethren, we need to pray for the people of all these terrible tragedies. And I'll tell you, the world's it's getting worse day by day. School bombings, school shootings, bombings, accidents, and the multitude of other incidents that prevent someone from having a tomorrow. What we do have is today. Have we done all that we should do in the event that there is no tomorrow? Those that died will eventually have a tomorrow. But the survivors must deal with the aftermath of these horrific events. We recently had a daughter-in-law's brother that killed himself just before Thanksgiving. 
Brethren, we need to be grateful and thank God for all the blessings that he has poured out on us as individuals and as a nation. Thank you for your time.